a series today that, that's going to go over the next few weeks and probably will be interrupted by our missions. And uh, the series is on natural authority and spiritual power. Natural authority and spiritual power. I wanted to have this series before we get to the elections uh, because I think it's important for the church to understand our role in the way that God wants to move in our world regardless of who is elected, regardless of these things. We are living in a season where there is friction between natural authorities and powers and spiritual authority and supernatural power. In fact, all you have to do is look around the world and you see this friction in places like China and Cuba, Cuba and places where Muslim faith, and, and now we are seeing it growing more and more even in America, the friction that takes place. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you would turn, please, to the book of Hebrews chapter 1, and then I'm going to have you turn to Revelation 19. And today I just want to introduce this series, and the title of this is The Spirit of Prophecy. Hebrews 1.1. In the times past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, who, by the way, we rejected, despised, and killed, and many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Now, if you turn, please, to Revelation chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. An angel is speaking to John, and John is caught off guard by the glory of this angel and is tempted to worship him, and the angel addresses him in all of this. But the angel said unto me, me being John, Write, blessed are those who are invited to attend the, wearing, the, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Let me just stop here for a moment. And for all of you who have already made the decision and are living life following Jesus Christ, I just need you to know you're blessed today because you've been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. How wonderful it is to know that my name is written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. For those of you that can't say that, I'm so glad you're here today. Because by the end of this service, you're going to have an opportunity to receive Jesus. And he will write your name down in that book and you will be invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Then he added, these are the true words of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you. And with your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. He says, worship God. And then I'd like you to underline this. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we open ourselves up to you as fully as we know how to do right now. We are asking that you will speak to us. We need a word of hope. We need a word of faith. We need a word of encouragement. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and to convict us and to challenge us and to deal with us, but please do not leave us untouched. Open our spiritual ears so that we can hear what the Spirit has to say to His church and add many souls to your church today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. While I was away this summer, I had a number of different conversations with spiritual leaders in different places, and one of the questions that I was asking them and that we engaged in was, in, <clears throat> excuse me, in this political climate that we are now living, politically charged environment, 
We have understood that to speak biblical truth is coming under fire. In fact, if you're a Christ follower and you speak what the Bible has to say, then you will be, you will be labeled as bigoted, uninformed, ignorant, unloving, and even unchristlike. And those are just the labels that I feel comfortable using in church. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago to the younger generation when I was telling you that there is a Josiah anointing upon your generation, that God is going to raise you up, but it's important for you to recognize the season in which we live. This is not a peacetime season. This is a war season. And that season requires that we who are his church are prayed up, filled with the Holy Spirit, and fully equipped in the full suit of the armor of God on a day-by-day -day basis. One of the questions that I ask my colleagues and that I wrestle with, and I believe it was articulated well by Dr. Charles Stanley, and I want to show you this quote, is, is he said this, How can the church live up to its prophetic mandate if we care more about what politicians can do for the church than what Jesus demands of his church? Let me repeat that. How can we, as the church, live up to the prophetic mandate if we care more about what politicians can do for the church than what Jesus demands of his church? In other words, if we get caught up in this tension in our nation that the only way the church can move forward is if certain people get elected. The only way the church can live up to its mandate is if the political climate is just right then we have lowered the standard of the power of God because I want you to know if that is your belief, then you have woefully underestimated the power of the Holy Spirit in our world today and God over his creation. I would like in this introductory message to take a fresh look at one particular aspect, and that is of the aspect of biblical prophets' ministry. What happened when the prophets came to an intersection between the earthly power at the time versus the spiritual mandate of their being. And it's at this flashpoint that I believe God can inform us, His church today, of what He expects of us. And again, this is going to go over the next few weeks, and this is merely an introduction. How many of you today have heard the term, I'm speaking the truth to power? Any of you have heard that term before? I'm speaking the truth to power. I heard Dr. Mark Rutland tell a story that when he was a boy, one of his friends was a basketball coach in a small college in southern Georgia. And the team that was there was very diverse, even though it was a, a small college in, in southern Georgia. The, the team came from all over the place. The coach was a spirit-filled Christian, and in those days, it was not against the law for the coach to load the whole team up on a bus and take them to church to worship. And so that's what this coach did. He heard that there was a revival taking place. There was an evangelist in one of the local holiness churches, and he gathered up the whole team, put them on the school bus, and headed to go to this place. When the evangelist heard that the whole basketball team was going to be at the service that night, he was filled with great enthusiasm. What evangelist doesn't want to notch their spiritual belt with a whole basketball team? And so as he was preaching and the team was sitting there, he began to feel as if all of his energy was not quite reaching the place that it needed to be. 
There were, the response of the people wasn't quite there. So he leaps off the platform and he runs down the aisle and he happened to stop right next to the little guy from the Bronx who was sitting on the end of the row from his basketball team. And he looks at the young man and he said, are you a sinner? Tell me the truth. Are you a sinner? To which the young man looked up at him and said, no, sir, I'm a guard. You see, you can think that you are communicating clearly, but the message that you transmit may not be the one that is received, and the response that it elicits may not be at all what you had hoped for. Every husband in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about. When you are having a conversation with your wife and you think that you're communicating one thing, and the look on her face tells you that the ice is cracking underneath your feet. And you're wondering, where did this all go wrong? One of the truths that we hear so often today and, 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 that our communication is simply warped around cultural realities and, and words that get said over and over and over again become so cliche that they almost mean nothing. Here's one of those phrases, speaking truth to power. It is said in every kind of context today and it has come to mean so much that it almost means nothing. Here's the way we have heard it used. Some junior high boy cusses out his teacher in an English class and later brags to his friends he was speaking truth to power when actually he was just a profane little disrespectful brat. This summer when I was at the home of my son-in-law as we had helped them move into Alabama, it happened to be the night that we got the TV hooked up and we turned to one of our favorite channels, ESPN, and watched the ESPYs that took place that night. It is a sports show that honors some of the greatest players and some of the greatest plays that had taken place. And honestly, I can't remember exactly who the person was, whether it was a woman's soccer player or a woman's bas basketball player, but she had received an award, and she got up there, and rather than talking about the award, she launches into this political speech as it relates to the way that we should all be. And at the end of that, as she's walking off the stage, everybody stands and gives her a standing ovation. And when they interviewed her later, she said, I just needed to speak the truth to power. I watched a medical school graduating class on TV in June when about half the graduates stood up and walked out of the graduation ceremony because the invited guest speaker for their commencement spoke to them from a pro-life perspective that they disagreed with. And when interviewed later, one of the participants said, we walked out because we needed to speak the truth to power. It has become popular to speak our truth rather than the truth. And we, even in the church, need to be very, very cautious when we are speaking that we know what we are talking about. I'll tell you what speaking the truth to power is about. It's about the prophets and the kings that they encountered. They spoke truth to power because their power that they were speaking to was without limitations. Remember, the kings in the Bible were not presidents of republics. There was no Supreme Court. There was no Congress. There was nobody that was going to keep their power in check. The law was embodied in their word, and their word was law. 
So, to speak the truth to a king, not a constitu constitutional leader, but an emperor, was a high-risk operation. Let me give you one example. The life of John the Baptist. John the Baptist knew what it was like to speak the truth to power when the stakes were high. Many of you know that John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus. He was a great prophet. In fact, interesting enough, he's the prophet that had one foot in the Old Testament and the other foot in the New Testament. John was loved by the people, but he was hated by the religious leaders of his day. You would think that if you were a religious leader, you would be overjoyed in the fact that the population of the towns and countries that you oversaw were having revival, that people were coming out and receiving Jesus as their Savior. But that was not the case at all. He was loved by the people, hated by the, the leaders, because the religious leaders recognized that they were about to lose their power and they were not about to surrender their authority to some wild man who's baptizing people in the river. And so they stood up against him. And when John spoke to the mob, as the Bible describes it, the religious leaders at that time, he spoke truth to power, recognizing the cost that it could take. Now, I am uncertain as to what the reality is that the religious leaders of the day could have done to him, but that was not the last time John the Baptist spoke the truth to power. Some of you will remember Herod Antipas. He had power. In fact, if you read in Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 through 5, it says, Now Herod had arrested John and bound him, put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. So what you need to understand, a little bit of the history of this, is that Herod Antipas had been married to a woman who was the daughter of a king of a neighboring country. She had married him because this is the way that alliances were made in that time. Kings will say, here's the deal. I'll give you my daughter, you marry her, and there will be peace between our lands. I don't know what went wrong in that, but Herod ultimately divorces this young lady. And then he turns around and marries Herodias. It wreaked havoc on the political scene because they became much less safe without their allies. But more than that, it was immoral. Herodias had been married to Herod's brother, Philip. And Herod took her from him so that his sister-in-law became his wife and John the Baptist denounced him, speaking truth to power, saying this absolutely is wrong and cannot take place. He confronted Herod about his illicit, incestuous marriage to his own sister-in-law. Here's the interesting thing. John the Baptist didn't do that in private with just a meeting between the two of them. He did this in public, in the streets, in the marketplace, so that everybody knew where he stood as he's speaking the truth, that it was not permissible for you to take your sister-in-law as your wife. Herod had full authority and full power. And having the power to get his voice out of the public, he immediately had John arrested and thrown into prison. And there, John languished. We don't know whether over time he would have let him go or not. But we do know that the hate for John must have been even greater in Herodias than it was in Herod. 
Herodias, the woman offended, begins to hatch a plan. And so she throws for Herod a birthday party. And at that party, she arranged for her own daughter to dance before Herod and his friends. A dance that is so erotic and so lascivious that it would inflame the lust of that old man, her husband, so that she could get whatever she wanted. Isn't that a pretty picture? In fact, if you do a little research into this, this girl that did this dance was probably his brother Philip's daughter, so he's watching his own niece dance. This woman, Herodias, basically pimps out her daughter to dance so erotically that her husband would be filled with lust for this girl and give her whatever she wants. And that is exactly what happened. It worked perfectly. Herod does, in fact, say to her, you are so attractive and I am so filled with lust for you that I'll give you whatever you want. She runs to her mother. Her mother says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king is distressed by this because he knows how many people love him, but he had just made a promise in front of a whole birthday party full of his peers. And under the pressure and stress of that, he is trapped by his own lust and doesn't want anybody to know that he has been manipulated. So he sends his soldiers to the dungeon and cuts John's head off and puts the bloody severed thing on a plate, gives it to the teenage girl who walks over and hands it to her mother. One Bible commentator said this, this happened because John underestimated the anger of a woman that has been scorned in public. I don't believe that's true at all. To believe that would mean that John did not know what he was doing and the risk that he was taking when he spoke truth to power. You see, Herod needed no permission for this plan. All he had to do was snap his fingers and give the order and the swords would come out of the soldiers and they would take the head off of anybody that he wanted. He was a dangerous egomaniac. And John the Baptist knew all of this before he ever uttered a word. I think John knew exactly the risk that he was running. And under the anointing and the boldness of God, spoke the truth to power regardless of the consequences and regardless of the cost. He was not deluded. He was not caught off guard. He was not confused. He was not naive. He did not mistake how far he could go with impunity. He was a prophet of God, and he acted with courage. How then do we view the role of prophet, and especially prophet in much more modern times? There are prophetic voices through our history and in our day. And, and I want you to know when I use that term prophetic voices, I'm not using capital P prophet, I'm using lowercase p prophet, that we speak with prophetic authority. They certainly are not prophets today in the sense of Jeremiah. There are no prophets in the sense of Ezekiel, but they speak with a prophetic authority to a generation or to a culture or to a country or sometimes to individuals. Prophetic authority, speaking to difficult issues of life. On May the 27th, 1785, 
General George Washington, who had just won the Revolutionary War, was about to be elected the president of the First Republic, and he wrote this in his diary. Last night, I entertained two men for dinner at Mount Vernon, a minister named Francis Asbury and a physician named Thomas Koch. After dinner, they left. That is all he wrote. Interesting enough, Francis Asbury wrote something different in his diary about the same night. Francis Asbury, for those of you that may not know, was the head of the Methodist Church, and he was there in this new republic in the frontier spreading the gospel, and Thomas Koch, a physician that John Wesley had sent over to help him in America, was to help him run this new Methodist Church. Francis Asbury wrote about the encounter with George Washington this way. Last night at Mount Vernon, Dr. Koch and I pleaded with General Washington to sign our petition, denouncing slavery and to free his own slaves. He declined. Now, I am not one of those that disrespects the founding fathers. I am not into the cancel culture. They were great men, but they were flawed men, as well as all of us are flawed. And some of them had flawed world concepts. One of those flawed world concepts was about slavery. We will never know, of course, because God doesn't tell us about all of the what-ifs and what-could-have-beens if different people had made different decisions when confronted with prophetic authority. But what if that night turned out differently? What if, having been confronted with prophetic authority, George Washington had signed that petition? What if he had freed his own slaves, 315 of them? What if he had called on Thomas Jefferson and said, you know what? I know that you're a slave owner as well. Why don't the two of us take leadership in this role and combine our influence and make a change that will be for the good of our nation? Let's convince other slave owners and let's end this thing. If this happened that night, perhaps less than 100 years later, hundreds of thousands of American boys would not have had to die on the battlefields of Gettysburg and Shiloh to end that practice. I am not saying that Francis Asbury was a prophet with a capital P, like Ezekiel or Jeremiah or others, but I am saying he spoke that night under a prophetic authority to address an issue that needed to be addressed with a leader that needed to hear it. I believe that the church is going to be called on to speak with prophetic authority, and we better know what we are talking about. If we're going to talk about prophetic authority, we also have to talk about false prophets as well. There are fake kings in the sense Herod was a fake king. He was the king of Israel, but he wasn't even a Jew. He was an Idumean. He had been appointed by the king uh, to be king of Israel by Caesar in Rome. He was a fake king, and, and fake kings are bad, but they are not nearly as dangerous as false prophets. We have often, in the broader Pentecostal and charismatic movement been quite liberal with our view and understanding of what it means to be in the prophetic or using things such as just uh, thus saith the Lord. We have all been in places where it seems as if somebody takes that platform and says something that really isn't about God at all but is more about their vain glorious purpose of being seen. Sometimes in the body of Christ in particular, in Pentecostal circles, we've been way too casual about these things. 
I was visiting a church a couple of years ago, and when I got there, I discovered the pastor was on vacation, and there was a guest speaker that day. And I was sitting with my family, and, and the guest speaker had been introduced, and as he's making his way to the platform to speak, somebody on the front row, a lady on the front row, jumps up and begins to speak out a so-called prophecy. And I want you to know that for those of you that may have been in those settings, she was just a few words into it, into the very first sentence, for all of us to recognize that this woman was not speaking under the prophetic direction of God. But whatever it was, we knew quickly that she was not speaking, thus saith the Lord, but was merely an individual that wanted to hear herself talk or to give herself a spiritual role. Everybody knew she was loony. I mean, we're sitting there in that church and we're going, oh, dear Jesus, dear Jesus, she's crazy. And the guest speaker gets up there and really does not know what to do in that setting. So he simply said, thank you, and, and went on with the message. There is a reason that the Bible instructs that the gifts or the manifestations of the Holy Spirit are to take place in community. Take place in a group by which we then take those things which are said and we hold them to the foundations and the guidelines of the Word of God. And we hold the people who use those gifts accountable as well as what they said. In fact, it tells us in 1 John 4, 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. I believe this is a word to the church. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then the following verse tells us how we can begin to understand whether they are legitimate or not. In fact, listen. We have probably all heard people say, thus saith the Lord. And I want you to know that when I was growing up, we were always told that, you know, to take the Lord's name in vain meant that you're not going to cuss somebody out using Jesus' name. And just for the record, I'm against that. I, I, I don't believe that that's a good thing. But I believe that taking the Lord's name in vain can go beyond that, even within the church, when we want to make a point and we feel it would be to our advantage to throw something about God. So we say, thus saith the Lord, and then we spout our opinion. I believe that that is just as dangerous of taking the Lord's name in vain as whether you are using it in a cursing setting. There are times when there will be some authority that is necessary from the platform to bring correction, to call people out. You may have a pastor that has to stand up and say, I'm sorry, take a seat. We're not going to receive that today. You, you know, this doesn't invalidate your place in the universe, but God's not nearly as mad at us as you seem to think he is and, and just have to bring some correction to those things. I've often thought, wouldn't it be nice if God would be a little more involved in that directly? If somebody stood up and said, thus saith the Lord, and then they start into something, and suddenly there's this voice that comes from above the roof going, no, I didn't. That sucker is on their own. It would, it would be so much easier. But because we are often so overly accepting and casual about what thus saith the Lord means, it can even encourage false prophecy or worse, false prophets. There was a false prophet in the Old Testament by the name of Zedekiah. And you can read the entire account in 1 Kings chapter 22. But let me just highlight this for you. Jehoshaphat was the good king of uh, Judah, the southern kingdom. And Ahab was the wicked king of the northern kingdom. And they had formed, Israel had formed a, a military 
alliance together to fight a foreign power. Now, I need you to know Jehoshaphat should never have joined that together with Ahab. It was, it was not a good move. So be careful with whom you form partnerships with. But he did. And as they were about to go to battle, Jehoshaphat, evidently sensing that something was wrong, asked Ahab, do you have any prophets of God here that we could hear from and seek counsel for? And Ahab goes, we've got hundreds of them. And so they brought in 400 prophets, all of them false prophets. These were the type of people that would prophesy whatever Ahab wanted to hear. And so Ahab consults them and says, should we go to battle? And they're going, oh, yeah, you should go. Thus saith the Lord, you're going to win. It's going to be a wipeout. You should just go. One of them, Zedekiah, in an attempt for whatever reason to make his prophecy stand out from the other 400, creates these horns of iron. I, when I was trying to picture it, I thought, look like a Minnesota Vikings fan. You know, this kind of hat thing. And he's going, you're good. Thus saith the Lord, you're going to go in and you're going to gore them and wipe them all out. And, you know, they went through with all of this. Jehoshaphat apparently, since that this was not working, asked, do you have any other prophets that we could hear from? And Ahab said, okay, okay. There's this one guy and I hate him. Because he never says anything good about me. His name is Micaiah. I hate him. And Jehoshaphat said, let's bring him in. And so they send out a messenger to go get Micaiah. And as he is being brought in, the prophet that went to get him said, hey, just want to give you a heads up. All 400 of us have all agreed on this thing. We've told them it's a go. They're going to win. So the best thing that you can do is just agree with us. And, and, and then we'll all be good together. Micaiah gets there. And he stands before the king, and they ask Micaiah, are we going to be victorious if we go into this battle? Micaiah looks around, and he sees all these 400 prophets and the man with the little horns, and, and he just mocks them, and he goes, oh, yeah. Oh, sure. You just run right in there. It's going to be great. You can just win, and everybody's going to run from you. It's just going to be awesome. And, and obviously, Jehoshaphat looks at him and recognizes that he's just mocking everybody. I can almost picture him looking at Zedekiah and going, man, those horns are really nice. I, I, that's a great, great tool to help you out there. And Jehoshaphat stands there, and then it's King Ahab that says the most interesting thing. This wicked king tells us in the 16th verse, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And Micaiah said, you want to hear what God really has to say about this? You want to thus say it the Lord moment? Well, here's what God has revealed to me. Here's the truth. You're not only going to lose this battle and this war, you're going to be killed in the middle of it. You will die a bloody death in the battlefield. And Ahab turns to Jehoshaphat and says, Didn't I tell you? I told you that he hates me. Never says anything nice about me. And then Ahab looks at Jehoshaphat. And in verse 28, he says, if you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Mark my words, all you people. In other words, Ahab, if you come back, I'm a false prophet. True prophets put their prophetic statements on the line and they say to everybody, you hold me accountable to the truth of what I am saying. Now, we have been recently through a season within our nation where there were a lot of people that prophesied a lot of things. 
Some of those prophecies did not come true. But when you add the words, thus saith the Lord to something, you have gone beyond a prediction. Now you are stepping into something that is prophetic. And if you're wrong about that, then you better take accountability for it. And the body of Christ should hold people accountable for being a false prophet. So here's the tension. We live in it. The tension of the secular power battling spiritual authority. Worship team, if you'd please come. We are about to dig into for the next few weeks what it looks like for the church to be able to speak the truth under the prophetic authority of God by the examples that we see lived out among us of some of the encounters between the prophets and the kings. And I'm going to dig into this much deeper and, and show examples that will inform us of these things. Prophets are always about the heavenly kingdom. Kings are about the earthly kingdom or natural kingdoms. Prophets are always about the throne of God. Kings are about earthly thrones and powers. And there's drama there. There's contention. And we live in it because Christ chose us to live at such a time as this. But he did not choose us to be overcome. The Bible's filled with stories of leaders and kings and generals whose lives and nations were impacted by the spiritual prophetic counsel that was either received or rejected. And so I'm going to be telling some stories. And as we relate those stories, we're going to take truths of that and apply that to where we are today and how we are to live. Because those prophets' struggle is not theirs alone. We live in that tension in our world today. We are part of an ongoing war between the here and now and the not yet and forever. I believe God's word has wisdom for us. I'm confident that his spirit will lead us in understanding that we can understand our times and our lives and our roles and that we will follow the instructions for these interactions. And I hope that you'll join us as we follow through on these things. I, I hope that you'll make it a point to be here for every service. And for those of you watching online, I want to encourage you to come and join us. Community here is wonderful and we miss you.